Jonah chapter 4. If you don't know where the book of Jonah is, you're going to have a real hard time finding it because it like sits in between a bunch of little minor prophets somewhere toward the latter half of the Old Testament. And there is a table of contents. You can open that up. There's no shame here, no judgment if you need to look at the table of contents. Um, I do on occasion. <laughs> and, um, uh, in my Bible, it's on page 775. I don't think it's helpful to you to know that, but... Um, that's what page is, 984 in some of your Bibles. Is that the Bibles in front of you? Some of you have Bibles up there. That's fantastic. Uh, Jonah chapter 4. So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we've been in a series over the last few weeks looking together at this punchy, subversive, ironic, funny little book of Jonah. And I love this book. I've studied this book many times. I've preached through it a few times. And it is, every time, I, I feel like it is surprising me, it's awakening my own heart to some of my own idols, some of my own deficiencies, and to the greatness, to the wideness of God's mercy. And that's why this book was given to us. And so we're going to be entering this morning into the last, the final chapter. It's our final week in this book. And so as we prepare to open up our Bibles, let's just pray one more time and ask that God would speak and that he would give us ears attuned to his voice. God, we approach you this morning as the God who is there and who is not silent. You are God who reveals yourself because you desire for us to know you. And you have spoken to us in your word, you have spoken to us in your son Jesus, and we pray, O oh God, that as you speak to us, that you would give us ears to listen. So come, Holy Spirit, come among us now. Come and speak as your word goes out and give us ears attuned to your voice. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So we're going to just jump right into it this morning because this, this final chapter, this final story is just brilliant, it's interesting, and so we got to just get into it, get, get right to work here. So uh, let's set the, the final chapter here of Jonah in context. So when we pick up the story today, Jonah is on the heels of the most successful revival campaign in the history of the world. Jonah walks into this great city of Nineveh, 120,000 people, and every last one of them, from the greatest to the least, from the king to the servants, uh, from, 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 from the people on the streets to the cattle in the fields, all of them repent. There is this dramatic conversion, this dramatic turn from their sin to God, and what has driven preachers like myself crazy for years and has actually felt, filled us with a tinge of bitterness is that this, the greatest revival in the history of the world, uh, came about as a result of the worst sermon ever preached in the history of the world. In Hebrew, it is five words. It is 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
There are no stories about little puppies. There's no clever analogies. There's no moving antidotes about, the ch about uh, Jonah's children. There's no poetry. Uh, there are no clear-headed points in the sermon. It is, it, is not, it is one sentence, five words in Hebrew, and the entire city, all 120,000 of them, repents. And they're all former pagans. They, they weren't religious people that were kind of just waiting for this moment. These are bloodthirsty, violent, terrible, just horrible, horrible people. And they all turn away from their evil ways in, in, a, in, a, in a drop of a moment, in a drop of a dime, just with this sermon from Jonah. And they all repent. And God looks down on their repentance. And God loves it. He just loves this stuff. And God, who had promised to bring judgment down on the heads of this unjust, oppressive, violent empire, God turns away from his plan to judge them, and he instead extends mercy to them. And what began with terror, no doubt, ended with joy and dancing in the streets as God forgives the people of Nineveh. And so here's Jonah, where we pick up the story. He's off the heels of this amazing campaign. It is the height of his career, probably the, the, the most impressive, the most significant moment in his career as a prophet. And, and this is where we pick up the story. And let's look, at, let's look at where Jonah's at in this. Look at how it describes Jonah's state right off the heels of this revival. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Here Jonah is, the very height of his prophetic career. Everyone has repented, and what is his response? He is in completely despondent. He is utterly depressed, and he is filled with white-hot anger. Why? What gives? Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and he said this. Here, here is why he is so angry. He said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And God looks at Jonah and he's like, really? Is it right for you to be angry? Now what's fascinating is that in this moment when Jonah is full of anger, he's utterly depressed he is ready to give up, to have his own life taken. It's better for me to die than to live. Right in this moment, he turns to God and he prays. And in his prayer, he says, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? And then he says, For I knew that you were a gracious God, full of mercy, full of compassion and steadfast love. And he takes us back in this moment to Exodus chapter 34. You see, in Exodus chapter 34, it is one of the high points in the Old Testament. It is one of the most beautiful 
one of the richest sections in the entire Bible, Moses ascends up to the top of Mount Sinai in the midst of the dark clouds and the thunder and the lightning, and he meets there with the presence of God. And Jonah, or, and, and Moses there on the mountain encounters the true and living God, and as he encounters God, he begs God, he says, God, God, it, if I have found favor in your sight, Show me your glory. And God says to Moses, I'll do one better than that. I will disclose to you my very self. I will disclose to you my heart. And God passes by Moses on the mountain, and he, and he declares who he is before Moses, and he says this. It says, the Lord passed by before him, and he proclaimed, he basically said, here is my heart. He discloses his heart to Moses, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this became for the children of Israel something like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. They clung to these words from Yahweh. And a little bit later in the Torah, uh, Moses is, is, is terrified because God has threatened to destroy the people of Israel. And Moses there prays back to God, God's self-revelation. And he says, God, be your gracious and merciful self. You get to the Psalms, and there are these songs, these great hymns that the children of Israel are full of joy and dancing over God being gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You get to the prophets, and as Israel's in exile, it is the God's gracious, merciful, steadfast, loving self that they hang all of their hopes on. This disclosure of God's self became for Israel her lifeblood. It was what she banked her whole self on, her life on. Now, Jonah knew these words. It was the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. He's a Bible-believing prophet. He knows these words. And no doubt, like the rest of the children of Israel, he celebrated these words. He prayed these words. No doubt when he was in the heart of the belly of that fish, he prayed these words back to God. God, be your gracious, merciful self to me in the heart of this fish. Jonah loves these words, but his nagging fear has been, his nagging fear along the whole storyline from the very beginning when he ran from the call of God to all the way off to Tarshish, his nagging fear has been that this grace and mercy that he knew he needed himself, that he cherished for his people, his nagging fear was that God's gracious, merciful self would be true not just to God's people, but would actually stretch even to Jonah's enemies. And his worst fear is realized when the Ninevites repent and God extends mercy to them and Jonah is incredibly frustrated. He's just like, man, you can't, this God is so unreliable. You can't even trust this God to judge your enemies. And he's just terribly frustrated. And he asserts that to God in a prayer of lament. And then verse 5, he goes out of the city to see if God will respond to his little tantrum. 
And look at what it says, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he, see, till he should see what would become of the city. Nineveh is in Iraq. It's modern-day Mosul, essentially. And if you've ever been in Iraq in the summer, which I never have, but friends who have served in the military have told me that it gets hot there. I mean, real hot, 120-degree hot. And so Jonah goes outside of the city, and he builds this little booth. He's trying to get a little bit of shade, and he's watching to see if God will respond to his tantrum and actually, you know, shock and awe Nineveh. But remember, this is an unreliable God. You can't even trust him to judge your enemies. But look what God does next. The same God who sent the storm in chapter 1 and the fish in chapter 2 now sends a plant. Look what it says, verse 6. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant. Uh, Some of your Bibles might say that the Lord appointed a gourd. And he made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. The Hebrew that's translated plant is sometimes translated gourd. It may refer to a castor oil plant uh, that would grow up very quickly, had these big leaves. It may refer to a gourd, something like a pumpkin, you know, kind of vine that would sometimes attach itself to a structure and, and provide further shade, and it would grow up very quickly. But God sends this gourd. It's a gourd from the Lord. (laughs) And Jonah, who has been utterly despondent, who's been depressed, who's been angry, finally, he is finally in our story, he is finally happy. And why is he happy? He is happy because of the gourd from the Lord. You're just thinking, oh, I got a gourd from the Lord. And he's just... He's just a nice, nice gourd. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the gourd so that it withered. And then when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. That sounds like kind of a dirty trick, doesn't it? Like there's the gourd from the Lord and then this giant worm comes, you know, and it just attacks this gourd and the plant withers. And Jonah, notice his response. Jonah, who was so happy, his entire emotional well-being was wrapped up in this gourd from the Lord. Now it's been attacked and he's lost it. And now look at what it says. So Jonah was faint, and he asked that he now might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, really? You're really going to be that bent out of shape over the gourd? After the storm, after the fish, after all the repentant Ninevehs, this is what is is driving you nuts, huh? It's the gourd, and now you're ready to die. And the Lord said, you, he said, do you do well to be angry with the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well, angry. I do well to be angry, angry enough 
to die. And the Lord said, you pity the gourd. You pity that plant for which you did not labor and you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there were more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And then turn the page and see how it ends. That's it. Talk about a cliffhanger, right? You've been watching one of those movies, you know, you're totally into it, and then it just ends, and you're like, no, it, it, this can't be the end. Like, what happens next? We don't know. It's a cliffhanger. Now, at this point, we need to stand back and just talk for a moment about this book as a whole. What on earth is happening with this book? I think for a lot of us, you know, the book of Jonah exists in the subconscious realm of the flannel graph. It's kind of that Sunday school story you heard about some fish that swallows up a man. But you get to the end and you realize that something, there, there's something subversive, something ironic, something very odd that is happening with this story. Within the Bible, within the Bible, where does this book fall? Is the book of Jonah, is it, is it, a, law, is it a part of the law? Is it one of the Ten Commandments? No. Is it part of the historical literature? Is it like, you know, Kings or Chronicles? It's just narrating, you know, history. Now, is it, is it one of the Psalms? Is it, is, it, is it part of the hymn book of Israel? No. Is it one of the biographies of Jesus? No. Is it one of the, the letters written by St. Paul? No. This is a prophet. He's a part of the prophetic literature. And what was the purpose of a prophet? What did prophets do? Prophets would go to the people of God and they would provide a sharp critique meant to provoke religious people to ask questions about the ways in which they had betrayed God. Now Jonah is unique among all of the prophets because it's the only prophet that comes to us in the form of narrative. I quoted uh, a great uh, so, so, something from uh, Flannery O'Connor back when we started this series uh, from her, her great collection of essays called Mystery and Manners. Flannery O'Connor once said this. She said, a story is a way of saying something that can't be said in any other way. And it takes every word of the story to say what the meaning is. And I think Jonah is giving us a sharp critique that's meant to provoke the people of God about the ways that we have betrayed God and it comes to us in a way that can't, be, can't come to us in any other way than in the form of this story. And it's intended to actually expose us and challenge us and to give us a fresh vision of who God really is. And I want to suggest that this story does at least three things for us. 
Number one, I want to suggest that this story, and especially here in chapter four, Jonah is intended to act for us like a mirror. It's intended to be a mirror that exposes us. What was it that Jonah was so emotionally attached to? He was attached to the plant, to the gourd from the Lord. And God gets in Jonah's face and he says, you care about that plant. I care about people. Jonah, you take great joy in the plant when it flourishes and you're full of despair when it withers. But Jonah, I have great despair when people wither and perish and I take great joy when people flourish, you care about the plant. Now you know, Jonah, how I care about people. You know, Jonah is not the first, he's not the last Bible-believing, church-attending, religious person that cared more about plants than people, is he? And we're meant to ask, do we care more about plants than we care about people? Now, of course, of course, of course, plants are a good thing, right? This gourd, it was from who? It was from the Lord. It was a gourd from the Lord, and it was good. It provided shade for Jonah. And of course, caring for plants, seeing their cultivation, their vibrant flourishing is a good thing. God put humanity in the garden, at least for one reason, to to cultivate the earth, to care for it. Like we have a role in the world to, to, to take our hands on the raw materials, the stuff of this world, and do something useful with it. We are to care about plants and and the products of human ingenuity and development and culture. But Jonah's problem was is that he was more emotionally invested in the thing than he was in the people. And you know it as well as I do, it is easy in church life to be way more concerned about the things than it is about the people. You know, this church has been in decline for 25 years, about, The last few years, we've just not done a great job of being a faithful presence of Christ in this community, reaching out in the broader LA uh, area. We have not seen an influx of people meeting Jesus, being transformed by Jesus. We have not, we, we've not seen that like in great degrees in this church. And I wonder if, if, if there are some of us in this room who actually care more that in the last 20 years this church got rid of its traditional way of doing choir than they do that we have just not reached people. It's easy to care more about choirs. It's easy to care more about robes and uh, organs and music styles and carpet color and paint and websites and all of the things that, yeah, they're important, they're, they're good things, but they're not the main thing. The main thing that is at the very center of God's heart are people. And God has called the church into being to bear witness to his love and compassion among people. 
And so as we move into a new season, I mean, I was just thinking about this. I didn't plan this out, by the way, but we're going to go back into the sanctuary next week. And there may be some items that for you, there may have even been some plants that we've gotten rid of. But, you know, what we've done or not done, the stuff we've brought or not brought over in the sanctuary, the website, signage, names, or whatever, that's really, that, all that stuff is of relative importance to that which is the main thing. And the main thing is to be people that are engaged relationally in the lives of people in our community, in our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, people we go to school with, bearing witness to the great love and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. That is why we exist. Amen. And once we move back over, I mean, I just feel like over the last few months, like I have had my head down and I've just been working, 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 seeing to like working with all these details from renovating stuff to, to websites and signage and, and all this detail work. But all that stuff is, it's really just minuscule in importance to the work ahead. And the real work ahead involves all of us and it involves how we engage with people every day of the week. And we have to ask ourselves, do we care more? Are we more emotionally attached to things than we are to people? Are you more emotionally attached to your opinions about things than you are to people? Are you more attached to your political or your theological or your ideological opinions than you are about people? It is so easy to listen to talk radio, to watch Fox News or MSNBC or whatever your thing is, and to have it simply inflame and reinforce all of your own opinions about everything, out, all those people out there. And you cherish, you hold to your opinions. And anytime somebody slights your opinion or you're angry and you're upset because what you're really attached to are your opinions and not people. It can happen in our homes. It's why so many of us have found that our kids might be trying to rebel against us. It's because we've cared more about the insignificant, the little things, the plants, than we've actually cared about them, understanding them and their pain and their hurt and all the things that they've gone through. And they just want to be known. They just want to be understood. They just want to be loved. And you're just stuck on their hair or on the tattoo or whatever the thing was. So this is intended to be a mirror that exposes us and a way in which our hearts can go bad. We can care more about plants than about people. And Jonah strategically ends as a cliffhanger because it's open-ended how you and I will respond to this book, this prophetic critique. Will we hear this word? Will we repent? Will we confess? Will we engage in a new way of being in this world? So number one, this, this, this story, especially this fourth chapter here, is intended to be a mirror that exposes us. But secondly, it's intended to be a window into the very heart of God. God. 
Look again back at verse two. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, Jonah knew something, and he wants us to know this as well. What did he know? What does he want us to know? That God is a gracious God and merciful. That word merciful can also be translated compassionate. And it's the, it's the word in Hebrew, rachamim, which is taken from another Hebrew word. The root of the word is rachim, which refers to the womb of a mom. And what it's describing in the original Hebrew is the connection God has with humanity is being related to the connection a mother has with their own child developing in the womb. You've heard of attachment parenting. What happens with attachment parenting? Well, you're carrying around the child. The child is always attached to your body. You're trying to tie strings with this child. You know, they're always in some little thing on your body, carrying around, doing whatever. And the idea is, is that the same attachment that the mother has with this child, they want the child to then reattach with the parent. And what the author of our text is saying is that God's heart is attached to people. The way a mother feels about her child is the way God feels about you and me. When I read this this week, I had this memory of my daughter, uh, Lucy, back a, a couple years back. You know, Lucy is a tough kid. She's sensitive, but she's tough, and she's the kind of kid who will be lying in bed at night and be scared and be hurting, but won't come into our bedroom because she doesn't want to disturb us. And so when she comes in at night, we know that it's something serious. And I remember this night, Lucy came in, and she crawled up in our bed, and she was having enormous ear pain. And she, she was experiencing what would ultimately be a burst eardrum, which if, if you know anything about that, there is such acute pain that comes from a burst eardrum. And I can remember holding Lucy, you know, when she's crying and she's in pain and it would come in waves and, and just praying and thinking, God, let me bear this pain for my daughter. And this is God's heart for his people. God comes near to us. He says, let me bear your pain. And what is so astounding about this, what is so astounding about this is, is that, you know, when you study Christian theology, what, what Christians have always believed about God is that God is what the theologians call impassable, which means that God is beyond the ability to kind of enter in and, and feel pain and be changed by it. And God is the ground of being. He is the uh, unchanging, unchangeable one who, who was and is and ever has been. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the great unchanging one in his very nature. And so when it talks about God attaching his heart to us and him being full of joy when he sees his people full of joy or being grieved when his people grieves, it is by God's own volition. God has chosen to attach his heart to the hearts of his people. And this is the depth 
of God's compassion for us. God is wrapped up in how you are doing. His heart is like a magnet that is moved by human pain. It is drawn to human pain, and he has moved towards us with compassion. And God looks at the city of Nineveh as violent and unjust an empire as they were, as horrific a people as they were, and he didn't just look at them and see this ugly, violent, unjust people. He saw a people that just didn't know their right hand from their left. He saw beyond the action to the depth of world beneath the actions, the stuff that's going down deep. They were lost, and God was moved by them. And this is the depth of God's compassion and God's attachment to human pain comes to this acute moment in human history when God's compassion itself becomes flesh among us in Jesus. And God forever attaches himself to the world he made in creation by entering into creation in the incarnation so that he might share in our full humanity and know our pain. This is what the true and living God has done. He has entered into our suffering and pain and ultimately bore it on himself in the cross. He took our shame and our sin and our pain and bore it to its final and complete end on the cross. But he reveals to us not only the depth of God's compassion, But he also reveals to us in the text the breadth of God's compassion. It is not just for a subset. It's not just for you. It's not just for your family. It's not just for your neighbors. It's not just for strangers. God's compassion is for your enemies. Or we could put it like this. Remember that song by Bob Dylan? God on our side? Yeah? They're rushing down to get God on their side. Come on. But the song was asking, whose side is God on? Listen, according to scripture, God is not on the American side, and he's not on the North Korean side. He's not on the Democrat side. He's not on the, the, the Republican side. He's not on your side or your enemy's side. God is on God's own side. And in God's freedom and in God's sovereignty, utterly free from any sides, God has chosen to be merciful upon whom he would be merciful and to be compassionate to whom he would be compassionate. And in his compassion and mercy, he has decided, it is in his prerogative to show mercy and compassion to any, to all who turn from their evil and who call upon his name. He meets them with his ocean of love and mercy, his infinite ocean of love and mercy, and he transforms us. But his mercy extends out even beyond enemies. You know, do you wonder in this text what's the deal with the animals? Did you see the final phrase in which this ends? And also the cattle. Like, that's how the book ends. Like, what's up with the cattle, you know? Well, it's clear. God loves cats. That's a lie. (laughs) Perhaps the cattle should be considered as represented 
as a representative of the animal kingdom, of the entire created order. This God wants to not just redeem friends. He wants not just to redeem people in our kind of network, our thing. This God wants to redeem enemies, but this God wants to redeem more than enemies. This God wants to redeem everything, everything. Jonah's confused, wait, you love my enemies? You want to redeem my enemies? And God says, that is just the start. Later, Jesus is going to talk about the regeneration of all things. Paulus talks about the reconciliation of all things. Peter talks in Acts 3 about the restoration of all things. One day, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is going to break out and not just break out in the lives of those who belong to him, but the entire created order is gonna be released from its bondage to decay because this is how wide the mercy and love of God is. You can say amen, that's a good good point. We gotta wrap this thing up, I gotta land the plane. So this, this text is a mirror that exposes us, it's a window into the very heart of God's deep and wide mercy. But this text is also an invitation to walk down a path. This whole story is intended to rebuke us, to convict us, to expose us, and to invite us into a different way of being in this world a way of being that reflects God's own mercy and love so that when we look at human need, we don't just see problem, but we see people whom God loves and we ought to love. Years ago, uh, when my wife and I were living down in Seal Beach, uh, one day I was sitting up in the apartment and my wife had gone out for a walk with a couple of our kids with a stroller and she came home with a homeless man. And she came up to the apartment. She said, hey, uh, Josh, there's a guy that I met who's on the streets. He needs help. And uh, would you go talk to him? He doesn't speak English. (laughs) Like, what? What are are you doing, you know? And I walk out there, and this guy is dirty. He smells, and he doesn't speak English. And I'm just like, what? What? I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated with my, I'm, my wife. I'm like, what are you? What? I was studying the Bible, honey. <laughs> Working on a sermon to go talk to people. Make us do something. I like to talk. She invited him upstairs, and uh, he took a shower in our bathroom, and he ate lunch with us. We called a friend who uh, was fluent in Spanish and she helped kind of discern what his issues was. He was traveling, lost, far from home. We got him a bus ticket and sent him on his way. And what I saw as a problem, this need in front of me, I wanted to ignore it. My wife saw it as a person that needed compassion, that needed mercy. And this is the call of the gospel on our lives. 
God saw you like that man, dirty, unclean, lost, in need of a ticket back home. And God has come into the world in Jesus Christ to rescue us and to bring us back home. And after he showers us with his love and mercy and grace, he invites us to go out into the world and to be agents and instruments of his compassion and mercy and grace. And may that be our concern going forward. May it not be the plants or the buildings or the carpet or chandeliers or anything. May our passion, may our concern be people. Let's pray. God, we ask that your spirit would strengthen and enable us to be agents of your mercy and compassion in this world. God, open our eyes to the beauty, to the depth, to the width of your mercy and compassion that you have poured out on us. And God, being people that have been recipients of your grace and mercy, would you enable us to be agents of your mercy and grace in this world. Amen.